Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Side Stitches on Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. Now, this week is going to be very different and a little awkward because if you can't tell already, you're not hearing anyone else talking. And just like Ian Malcolm sitting all alone in the proverbial Ford Explorer in Jurassic Park, I'm uh, now sitting here by myself and uh, talking to myself because Matt and Chelsea are not able to be here this week. Um, Chelsea is out. She's got some stuff going on that she is taking care of. And Mark, unfortunately, is a bit under the weather on our recording day. So you will just be stuck with me today. Now, we've actually got a pretty fun topic for today, though, and we're going to be talking about portable console gaming and we're doing this because our main episode this week is featuring a guest by the name of ben heck you may be familiar with him because he has had not one but two youtube channels uh basically uh is which is just him hacking digital stuff especially consoles so he will take your consoles that normally you'd have to play on your television, and he'll make it so you can, I guess, kind of put it in your pocket. They were a little bulky, but you could at least play them on the go. So we thought this week would be fun to talk about basically our favorite and our kind of like our, our greatest hits of portable consoles. But since it's just me, we're going to do a very quick rundown of the history of portable consoles. Because if it's just favorites, well, it's kind of weird to just hear me sitting here talking about my favorite portable consoles with no one else to interject on it. So without further ado, let's look at where portable consoles started. And that would actually be all the way back in 1972, where we get some pretty early handheld electronic games. So, which I believe the earliest one is called Waco's Electronic Tic Tac so yes it's a very very simple console indeed because it just has the one game and for not only this first generation but also the second and third generation these portable consoles pretty much only played one game and you had by and large to all of them these static backgrounds where even if the console wasn't turned on you would always just see the background there and it was kind of an easy or not an easy, but a way around programming that for the game itself. You have this thing permanently there for your screen. So you can kind of have this background of what's going on. And then you only have to deal with programming the sprites. And when you have a limited space that you could do that with, it's a pretty good idea. And I remember having at least like two or three of these things. I remember I had like a leftover game and watch ball that was hanging around for a while and I know I was thoroughly excited when little Game & Watch dude eventually shows up in uh, the Super Smash Brothers franchise but I digress um, I also had like a Super Mario uh, I think it was Super Mario Land was one of these two where it was just basically Mario jumping and like the screen kind of moved for you and was more or less like the uh, the Google T-Rex game when the when there's no internet or no Wi-Fi for you. Uh, that's more or less the ability of these games. And I know my favorite one was actually this really cool Ninja Turtles one. It had this really long, sleek green design that was pretty cool. 
and I still have it. And by I still have it, what I really should say is that it's still my parents' house. Because like many things, my parents don't like throwing stuff away. And for some reason, they have an affinity for old electronics that they don't know how to fix, that I don't know how to fix, and that no one wants to fix. But my dad won't get rid of them. So it's sitting there. And if the trend continues... Let me know if you're interested in that old, old Ninja Turtles, like, not working, uh, like, would be, like, third generation um, uh, portable console, because I probably won't be allowed to get rid of it, so I'll have to will it to you if you really, really want it. Um, I'll find some pictures and put it up on Instagram so you can see it. Uh, But yeah, which brings us to where things would actually get, like, you know, worth mentioning. And this is going to be the fourth generation of virtual consoles. Because, again, those first three generations, very, very limited in what they could do. And when I say generation here, there is a bit of a, I don't know, take that with a grain of salt. Because these generations, even, like, I guess, like, their their big brother consoles that are stuck attached to your TV... There is overlap in production because while they may have a a you know a descendant that later on comes down uh, that is more powerful or sleeker or smaller or has some new uh, function to it, there may still be games coming out for that previous generation. So they just kind of keep making it and doing it. It's it's very similar to how like the PlayStation Two online service finally went down. What within the past like five or ten years, so not even that long ago as they finally stopped doing service for it. Uh, these little portable consoles also had the same deal where they just had games that extended past, like, basically what was usually intended for the consoles to have uh, for, like, their, I guess, like, their main run at life. So let's get into where things may sound familiar. And I'll go with the first true portable console, and that is going to be not the one you're thinking of, actually, because I think a lot of you may be thinking of probably the earliest portable console you had, and that was the Nintendo Game Boy. I know that was my first one, too. But believe it or not, two years before it came out, way back in 1987, you had the Epic's Handy Game, which you may not know that, and it may not sound familiar. And that's because two years later, the same portable console was rebranded as the Atari Lynx. And this thing was ridiculously ahead of its time. In 1989, it had a backlit screen, which is something that Nintendo Portables wouldn't get until 2005. And even then, it was like the second release of that portable console in 2005. Nintendo finally put a backlit screen in there. So not only could you have a backlit screen so you could you know play in the dark when you're supposed to be sleeping... Um, but you didn't care about sleep because you were young and no one is worried about going up to, you know, waking up to go to school in the morning because there's gaming to do. Um, if you couldn't see your character back at screen, you could actually zoom in on these things because you they actually had so you could scale the sprites. And what I think is one of the really cool features of this is that it was for lack of better terms, it was an ambidextrous portable console. So when I say ambidextrous, obviously you don't have to be right-handed to play a Game Boy, but when you think about it, like your dominant hand is the one taking care of the AB controls, your left hand's doing your directional thing, and if you're left-handed, 
you know, that's backwards. But the Lynx was really cool where you had the, if thinking from a right-handed perspective, I've got my D-pad on the left side of the Lynx. I've got my screen in the middle. And on the right side, you've got your AB button on the bottom, speaker right above it, and then even above the speaker, another AB button. So if I was right-handed, I'd play with the bottom ones. And then, but if I was left-handed, I could flip the console so that my right hand is now taking taking control of the D-pad, and my left hand can do the AB button, which is really, really cool. Um, things that didn't work out very well for the Atari Lynx, one was uh, production shortages happened, and they just couldn't really keep making them for very long, which I'm guessing is probably due to cost. Uh, as well as probably like the biggest, uh, not not the biggest problem, but another big one was short battery life. I couldn't find like how long they were last, but I mean, I remember like having my Game Boy being able to last for quite a while before having to replace those four double A's that win that thing. So if this was complaining about short battery life, it didn't, it probably didn't make it very long. And what probably had to be like the most damning thing for it was just lack of compelling games, which, you know, that happens to a lot of smaller consoles or consoles, or even like we've talked about like RPG games trying to find their ways onto like PCs. Uh, and there just isn't a market for some of the things that happen. So this becomes like a, like a total failure. Uh, but what's crazy about it is Telltale Games, one of our favorite companies uh, for gamings, believe it or not, kept making games for the, for the Atari Lynx. Uh, when event because eventually Hasbro takes over and has the rights to to the Lynx, and Telltale would make games for it, all the way until two thousand and four. That was pretty long. I mean, this was you're already several Game Boy like generations after that, uh, and like you know a few other competitors which we'll get to here. So, but by and large, the Lynx was definitely dead. Um, not on arrival, but shortly after. Uh, the other one that came out after the game. Well, no, I won't skip around. We'll go to the Game Boy because that's the one we all love. What's the one we know and love? That comes out in 1989. And this is where a lot of us really got that introduction again into portable gaming. We had our our uh, basically no color screen. And like I said, unlike the Atari Lynx, it's not backlit. So no color, no backlit. Um, but it's pretty affordable. This thing was 89 bucks when it came out. Uh, and you got great games like Metroid and Kid Icarus. Um, you had Mario Land for this. Uh, and not to mention when Tetris comes out in the early 90s, forget about it. You didn't need anything else after that. Um, you look at like overall sales for this thing. Um, initially, the Game Boy uh, moved at least 64.4 million units um, initially, which is insane but uh that was from its release uh in 89 to 2004 uh numbers after that showing in 2005 when apparently because they were still selling game boys in 2005 which i'm talking the bricks not the not any of the previous generation not, not the not previous generations the the after generations from the original one uh, apparently they kept selling and this thing moved 118 million units from its introduction all the way to 2005, which is, I mean, insane. And I'm guessing that a lot of those units could be, you know, people wanting some nostalgia because they had an old one at one point. You could buy a refurbished one or I guess a 
technically a new one from Nintendo. Uh, I think mine still has the one eight hundred number on the uh, on the uh, the back panel in case anyone uh, in case it uh, something went wrong with it. So if anyone else still has their Game Boy, how about you give the uh, the one eight hundred number a call and see if it's still working because that would actually be pretty cool if it was. Uh, and so of course that was the commercial success for Generation Four here, uh, but it wasn't even the last one for Generation Four. We had a few others this go around. And the one that came out still in the 80s, uh, actually, I'll no, take it back in 1990, was the next really big portable system. It was called the Turbo Express. Admittedly, never heard of this thing until today. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a small town. Uh, we. I think finally hit like 4,000 people in the early 2000s. Uh, so I do not recall the Austin Kmart ever having a Turbo Express. And one of the reasons why was because in 1990, it came out for $250, which, you know, you might be like, well, whatever. That's not a whole lot. Today, it's not a whole lot if it's just $250. But because it is a tradition on this podcast that we adjust for inflation, I will have you know that if you bought a Turbo Express for $250 at retail back in 1990, you paid $551 for it today. Which again, that's more than like new OLED Nintendo Switch money. Which is crazy because this thing, while actually, you know, pretty good for its time, uh, it had the same size screen as the Game Boy, but at a much higher resolution. It was backlit, it was color, and that resolution could display 64 sprites at the same time. It had 512 colors. Uh, it was actually pretty darn impressive. But, very much like the uh, uh, the Atari Lynx, not a ton of great games for it. Even though what was there were, was pretty cool. Like, they had basically um, a uh, flight simulator game called Falcon, and you could connect your two turbo expresses uh kind of like you could through a link cable for the nintendo for the for the game boys and you could have like a head-to-head dogfight mode which is pretty cool but good luck finding another person to dogfight with because not a lot of people willing to shell out to uh with the equivalent of 550 bucks for a turbo express now a couple other things came out around this time uh that didn't do all that great. Um, you had things like the Big Corp Game Mate. Again, another one that I uh, have never heard of before. And honestly, if you say it with an Australian accent, that's where I figured it came from. The Big Corp Game Mate. This is my terrible Australian accent. I'm never going to use it on this podcast again because it's already slipped into a weird British. So we're going to forget I ever did that. Uh, and just know that this thing uh, did not do very well. Uh, <laughs> it had uh, basically a bigger screen than the Game Boy, but the same resolution. And that was basically all it could really flaunt, so no one really cared about it. Um, you had the Watara Supervision. Looked like, I don't know, kind of a weird portable TV. Or like, I guess the best way to put it, it's like someone took the top half of a Game Boy where the screen is, cut off everything below that, and just made the controlling part smaller and kept the screen the same size. Not all that great. But what did make a splash, and one thing that I do remember 
is the Sega Game Gear, which is probably where other people listening to this podcast may have gotten their start into into portable consoles. This thing was admittedly really cool because resolution was a lot higher than uh, a Game Boy was, and this was the first thing I know I ever saw that wasn't a Game Boy that was portable. So higher resolution, um, I think it was, I'm pretty sure this was backlit as well, and something that was actually really cool is that its screen was intended to be a touchscreen, which is crazy because this was in 1991 is when the Game Gear came out. And they're like, yeah, this thing could be a touchscreen. Unfortunately, I think due to just, you know, trying to push and get the, trying to push it out there in time, but trying to get it actually out and marketable, touchscreen had to be basically foregone. And like, nope, we're not going to do it. Uh, but this thing was super cool. Um, it came in two colors. It was either black or navy blue. Um, the few people I saw with it just had ha- had black Game Gears. And uh, this was the same friend who lent me The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time for at least a year. So needs to say, he did not lend me his Sega Game Gear uh, for a whole year. Because, well, this was before the Ocarina of Time anyway. But anyway, yeah, I didn't get to have a Sega Game Gear other than playing it while I was at his house in limited capacity. Uh, and this was another one where it was a pretty costly one. In 1991, this thing was $289. So pretty costly. But unlike, you know, our Turbo Express, this thing was probably honestly worth it. Uh, you're looking at something that's Nintendo switched in, like, length. Uh, with a much smaller screen, obviously, because it's 1991. Uh, but as far as girth goes, imagine that your Nintendo Switch ran off of Mountain Dew and ice cream, Cheetos, and Sour Patch Kids exclusively. That's what you powered it with. Uh, and when you fed it those things... It acquired the mass of those things, <laughs> and that was that's how thick the Game Gear was. It was a pretty chonky boy, but at the same time, pretty cool. And that's what marked the end of this generation of of our portable consoles. So if we view this as kind of like a leg race for these portable consoles, we can see what the standings were for them. Uh, our Turbo Express is in fourth place at moving... 1.5 million units. Doubling that is the Atari Lynx at 3 million units. Now, in a very, very... And then the Atari Lynx, honestly, is a distant third because the Game Gear moved 10.6 million, understandably. I mean, it was a thing where it was it was just cool right off the bat. You could see the thing. Uh, it's bigger than the Game Boy. It's more powerful than the Game Boy. Um, but... That cost is also what kept it from even touching the Game Boy. Because while I did say that, that, you know, that huge, that huge 115 million number, um, in this generational period of like initial, like it's like an initial run, the Game Boy had 64.4 million units like moved. So that is a significant gap between first and second place. And we see here Nintendo begins its stronghold legitimate stronghold over portable consoles for quite a while to come because we hit the fifth generation. Um, There are really only like 
three things here worth talking about. Um, and even then, honestly, two things worth talking about. That's the Game Boy Color and the Nomad. So the Nomad is another Sega, um, another Sega adaptation here. It comes out in 1995. This is a North American-only release. If you haven't seen one of these things, it looks like an early car GPS. It's a, it's a pretty sizable amount of surface area dedicated to the plastic and a screen that may be Game Gear-sized, but maybe even... I don't know. It looks smaller comparatively. But then again, the Game Gear itself is huge. So it seems like it may be a thinner version of the Game Gear, However, they don't play the same games as each other. And Sega basically said that this thing was intended to be separate from the Genesis. It's not I'm not the Genesis, I'm sorry. The Game Gear. It wasn't meant to replace the Game Gear. They were still making the Game Gear. They were still making games for the Game Gear, but then they were also making the Nomad and games for it as well. And this may sound foolish, but at the same time, Sega's pretty successful during this time in the early in the early mid 90s. Uh, when Sony came out with the PlayStation, the Sega Saturn was more successful than the PlayStation was in Japan. In America, uh, the United States especially, not so much. But anyway, um, things that really hurt the Nomad in general uh, was that, while Sega, again, the Saturn was more successful than the PlayStation, uh, they were making the Saturn, the Genesis, the Game Gear, the Pico, and the Master System, as well as the Sega CD, and the 32X, they were stretching themselves pretty thin uh, when in terms of production. They were making a lot of consoles. So then this Nomad comes out. It's this, again, weird thing. It's not replacing the Game Gear. It's not going to be able to play the same games as the Game Gear. And by the time 1999 rolls around, just four years of production, Nomads are selling for less than a third of the original price. Not that great. Um, when you look at consoles and even portable consoles, yeah, you get price cuts as times go as as the time goes on. But I mean, the Game Boy really hung in there um, before it got like its second iteration uh, iteration because this its next iteration was the Game Boy Pocket, which you could consider like also at the end of the third. I'm sorry, the fourth generation of these consoles. Uh, but this is and that came out in 1996. And this thing was basically, the only thing it was showing off was that it was super thin and could fit in your front pocket. And it could barely be noticed. I mean, it'd be, it'd be noticed. I mean, it's the same as, like, I don't know, the same as having your cell phone in their day. If you have, like, a like a Galaxy Note or, you know, a, a, like a, I guess, a tablet-style cell phone? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's something like that. But anyway, um, pretty thin. This thing ran off AAAs, which, you know... And then you have two triple A's, which is quite a big change from the four double A's that the old brick Game Boy was taking. Um, also, because, you know, to, you know, Saturn, uh, Sega was having their Game Gear available in two colors. Nintendo will not be outdone, my friends. No, they offered the Game Boy Pocket in eight different colors. You get this bad boy in red, yellow, green, black, clear, silver, blue, and pink. Still didn't get a backlit screen, though. Or even color. This thing was like a nice, <laughs> nice. This thing was in a ugly pea suit monochromatic display, the same one that the original Game Boy had. So again, really, the only thing this thing did was get thin. Went on a pretty, you know, sizable diet plan. But 
You also had no idea when it was going to die on you because it took away the battery light. That was gone. And there's no LED display on it, so you didn't get anything on your screen telling you the battery was about to go. So it would just just be done, Uh, which would stink if you had a game that you were playing at where you could actually save something. Uh, Save, like, your progress on it. But, I mean, if you're playing something that you couldn't save, it'd just be frustrating and oh well. But anyway, um, you had some other, like, really non-noticeable things at this time were non-notables, like the Gamecom, which is called Gamecom, but when you see it, it is a Game.com. Came out in 97, and it was trying to jump on the dot-com bubble or thing, because why not? Let's get trendy. We've been using that Got Milk advertising slogan that you've been beating with the dead horse for years. Uh, they did the same thing. They jumped on the dot-com thing, except refused to, <laughs> to acknowledge the dot in there. Um, I don't know. Thing's pretty lame, in my opinion. Uh, it had a stylus. It had PDA-style features. It came up from Tiger Electronics. Um, it could have two different types of game cartridges go into it, which I guess, you know, Nintendo didn't do until, you know, you had the DS on it. But, oh well. I don't know. It was forgettable. So, moving on. Uh, the true champion of this next generation, uh, which we're still in the fifth generation here, or the real, I guess the real start of the fifth generation, is the Game Boy Color. And I still have mine, because every once in a while I go to the laundromat and bust out my Game Boy Color and pull out Pokemon Yellow or Pokemon Red, and I'll play on my Game Boy Color, because why not? I had a really cool one that came out as a gold and silver edition. So it had, like, uh, Togepi, Pikachu, and Pichu on it, and it was pretty cool. I dig it. It used to, like, be really noticeable because you'd move it and it look gold you'd move it and it look silver now it's old so it just looks like a weird mix of gold and silver all the time but i'm not judging it everyone gets old things don't work like they used to i still love your game boy color and i still play every once in a while this guy came out in 1998 in japan comes out shortly after here in the states um but this thing was awesome. Like, it ran off two AA's, so bigger batteries than our little uh, Game Boy Pocket. But color, still no backlit, which sinks because it's frontlit, so you've got to get that additional slide-on light for it to still, you know, to play it when you're supposed to be sleeping. Or if you're in a car with your parents because your dad tells you that it's illegal to turn the light on in the car to play your Game Boy, which, on to you, Dad. It's not illegal. Cops don't care. I can play my Game Boy back there, and I'm going to on the next family road trip. Watch me. But anyway, I digress. This guy is pretty dominant uh, as far as this console goes, as far as this generation goes, because I think the Nomad was its only other real competitor. And even then, not much real competitor, because the Nomad only moved about a million units, and believe it or not, there's something called the Wonder Swan, which... No idea that the Wonder Swan even existed. Um, and it had even a different version, the Wonder Swan Crystal. Um, it looks overly complex for what it was, with basically two D pads on one side and a uh, AB button on the other side, start and select in the middle. Um, my guess, thing probably died out due to game selection, like a lot of these other ones did. That thing sold 3.5 million. But the Game Boy Color crushed at 54.3 million units moved. So again, 
you're talking about a Grand Canyon between the Game Boy Color and its nearest competitor. Nintendo is just like, you know, laughing at its competitors in this uh, portable console foot race here. And then when you get to the next generation, you get to generation six, um, it had uh, what the N-Gage was a competitor here. And this thing, it is like the Blackberry of the portable console world. There are so many buttons on this thing. You have a full, like, one through nine number button on this thing. Uh, it's got literally, I think you can take phone calls on this thing. It's like, it's like a weird smartphone that was meant to be a gaming console too. Uh, it was made by Nokia and moved like 3 million units, but I'm guessing this is like also the equivalent of like easy edge and whatever the internet you had on like your, um, your Nokia's back then it was clunky. Didn't work very well. And 3 million people bought it, and I'm guessing 2 million people regretted it because the Game Boy Advance family moved 81.5 million units uh, and just crushed the N-Gage. And I have my Game Boy Advance still. Don't really play it anymore, but believe it or not, crazy thought, I bought it because a Pokemon game came out. And this was basically the start of how Nintendo would start doing its business for Pokemon in the future where it would release an original game and then it would release a remaster of an older game because the first Pokemon game for the advance was Pokemon Fire Red or Leaf Green. And you got to enjoy going through Kanto all over again with updated sprites for both the monsters and for the your character. You had this full, beautiful color world to play in now and a few small variations to the story here and there. But it was enough for me willing to, willing for me to buy the game again and go through it because it was just fun. Uh, it was had it well uh, <laughs> the advance had was basically like this this flat smaller version. You had left and right bumpers were added to it, which is pretty fun. Uh, but you could also get a different Game Boy Advance called the SP which had a clamshell design where you could fold it so it could be even less space. Um, Still, these two were front-lit for the most part until eventually you got the Advance Micro in 2005, which is finally backlit, and Nintendo can finally have a backlit system for all of us trying to not sleep and play video games so our parents won't notice. Thank you. It took you until I graduated high school and actually kind of game up on console gaming because I take a pretty big break here uh, as far as things go uh, for our consoles. And in the interim, the noticeable things that come out, we get the, uh, what, the Nintendo DS is the next really big thing that comes out. And that is what start starting the seventh generation um, is the Nintendo DS. And in that same uh, vein or that same generation, we finally get, like, a reasonable competitor for the Nintendo DS in the Sony PSP. So when you look at these two together, we've got the Nintendo DS has two screens. It can fold in on itself. Top screen is for, like, your game and what's going on. And that bottom screen is, like, an additional touch screen where you can manipulate the stuff that's going on in the game. So that was relatively newer but 
also not just new, but functioning and working very well compared to any of the competitors that he may have glossed over in previous generations. And of course, you know, way back when in the ni- in 91 when the Game Gear wanted to do it but just couldn't couldn't figure out to make it work, uh, Nintendo finally does with the DS. And again, like, I wasn't really gaming on it at the time, so I can't talk too much about it. And it's too bad Mark's not here because Mark is someone who had a PSP. And when you compare the two together... The PSP is bigger, a little bit chunkier than the Nintendo DS, uh, but the screen's much bigger and is very, very beautiful compared to the DS, where, like, Sony does this really good job of making it seem like portable gaming is something that's more than just for children, because that's how I felt with portable gaming for quite a while, is that, like, my Game Boy 1 was for kids. You've got boy attached to it. So that was something we're like, all right, well, I've grown out of this because no one wants to be lugging around a Game Boy anymore. And which is probably why, you know, Nintendo decided to go with the DS. Granted, you know, DS is for dual screen, but I mean, they could have just as easily called it the Nintendo Game Boy DS. Uh, But they just ditched the Game Boy name altogether. Uh, But anyway, Sony, again, they haven't seemed like this is really more of a... Not an adult gamer, but a grown-up gamer's uh, portable console. Bigger screen, more Sony-like feeling controlling on the sides. Um, game selection looked like it was pretty all right. Um, uh, you had an Assassin's Creed game on there, which didn't review very well. But you know what? Every one of those games, uh, every other one of those games seems like they're a miss anyway. As much as I love the franchise, you get some clunkers in there. It's just what happens when you try pushing out a game every single year. Uh, but... Yeah, the PSP gets like a Go version and a Street version where uh, I think it gets thinner. You get uh, a more responsive, uh, some more responsive gaming to it. And, you know, again, it does pretty well. It challenged Nintendo, like for the first time reasonably since the Game Gear because the PSP moved 81.09 million units while the Nintendo DS... Uh, only moved a modest 154 million units. Which, again, yeah, you can see, like, between the two, Nintendo is still very well in first place. But at the same time, that's closer, I feel like, than, like, the Game Gear ever got to touching uh, the Game Boy or even, like, or the Game Boy Color. So, you know, good job, Sony. You put something out there that works. And then we finally... Finally, after that seventh generation with the DS and the PSP, we get the modern era of our portable console games, which really starts with the Nintendo 3DS, where you get a much nicer uh, screen resolution in this. The screens are bigger on these with the 3DS and, of course, the DS XL. You do get some 3D capabilities, as the name would imply. Uh, I do have one of these. I actually had a DS Lite as well. So I didn't have a first-generation DS. I did have a DS Lite. Uh, unfortunately, my DS Lite was thrown away in a computer desk. Uh, very sad. I had a really cool Ghostbusters sticker on the front. Uh, thankfully, there no games were lost in the throwing of that desk, just, just the DS itself. And it's now, sadly, in a landfill, surrounded by other things from that generation and older ones. I miss you, DS Lite. 
But I still have my 3DS. I haven't thrown that away on accident. Uh, because I have Pokemon games and Legend of Zelda games to play on that. So I will never, ever part from my 3DS. It'll always have a, have a place in my gaming family. Meanwhile, PlayStation, not to be outdone or take things lying down because, you know, they do get outdone. Uh, they do have the PS Vita. And again, this is another area where it'd be really nice to have Mark here because he still has his PS Vita. I don't think he really uses it anymore um, because he, like most of us, um, eventually just, you know, got a Nintendo Switch. But before he could the Switch, um, the Vita was definitely a nice improved version of the PSP where, let's see here. Um, this came out in 2011. Uh, it had two analog sticks on it. You had touchscreen, you had OLED, LCD, multi-touch touchscreen on it. Um, it had Bluetooth and Wi-Fi capability with optional 3G, which <laughs> back when 3G actually gave you internet, the Vita could play off of internet-based games as long as you had it on there, which is pretty cool. It was also backwards compatible with, um, digitally released games from the PlayStation Network. So if you bought things to the PlayStation Store for, you know, classic PS1 and PS2 titles, um, you could play on this guy, which was pretty cool. Uh, because, you know, eventually your PS3 loses its backwards compatibility and gains it back in some limited capacities. But I digress. You could play them on the PS Vita if you had access to them digitally, which was pretty cool. But it was not cool enough to keep up with the 3DS because, again, uh, we have the PS Vita coming in a distant second place with moving only 16.2 million units where the 3DS moved 76 million units. Which, it's like, oh yeah, look at that, Nintendo still winning. But what you may have noticed is that both of them did drop quite a bit from the previous generation. Which is odd, because usually you'll see, like, with consoles, like, those sales tend to go up when you get new generations. Uh, graphics are better. Uh, you've got all these new features. You've got both previous generations of gamers and new gamers drawing into them. Whereas in this, the Vita and the 3DS both did that. You got new features. You got better graphics. Uh, you've got sleeker, uh, sleeker casings for them. But sales went down. And, while I don't have any, like, hard data to back this up, I think that's pretty much because of cell phones. Uh, with cell phones being in our pockets, we have access to, like, the Apple Store and the App Store, and we've already paid for the cell phones, we have them in contracts, but then they now have all of these, basically, a nearly unlimited supply of games for us to play. They may not have, at first, like, some of the amount of, like, depth that the Vita and the 3DS games had, but at the same time, when those games are free, that's pretty hard to compete with. It's just instant gaming right there for you. So that's what I think really killed these portable consoles. Because even when we get the Nintendo Switch, you're looking at 84.5 million units. And I'm not sure how up to date that was because I'm pretty sure the pandemic like just drove those units through the roof when you couldn't even get a Nintendo Switch to save your life. And um, now, I mean, looking at the Nintendo Switch, even when I play that, I don't play it portably very much. I usually just play it on my on my flat screen. Um, and I think most people who have a Switch that's not the light, that's how they probably play their Switch quite a bit too. Uh, of course, it can go anywhere because that's part of the appeal to it. 
But with me, like, I would prefer to have my Switch to be played on my much larger screen. But that's just me. I'm old and kind of a cranky gamer, and that's where I am in life. But that also is where it brings us to the end of our history on these types of consoles. Uh, this is the era we're in, the era we're living. And honestly, I think this might, this may be the last. Uh, I don't see these consoles going very long because we have phones until something even better than a cell phone for gaming comes along when we're on the go. Uh, whether that's, you know, in our commutes or on our long road trips. But I think that's where we're going to leave things off today. This was kind of a longer side stitch, and it was me just kind of rambling about portable consoles for 40 minutes. So if you're still here, thank you so much for understanding that this is a homegrown little operation and that sometimes um, members of our family may stumble, may fall, but the show just kind of keeps going on and... We're going to do what we can to give our listeners something because we also care about getting something out to you. So thank you very much for listening. And just to really throw something weird at you because I already did one bad accent today, I'm going to say we're going to end this episode with me demanding pictures of Spider-Man. And that's all I want on all of our social media are pictures of Spider-Man because it's going to confuse Mark and Chelsea when you keep posting them there. Give me pictures of Spider-Man!